Reunion Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 and Matthew chapter 9 verse 13 and chapter 12 verse 7 was presented by Carl Kenbar on August 5th, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute Reunion Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc. 2015 Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. So, reunion, Hosea 6.6, 6, Matthew 9.13, and Matthew 12.7. This will be interesting. I will not answer all the questions. I'll try to answer many of them that are involved in this passage. But my take on this is different from what it was two months ago before I started studying it in depth and trying to answer some of the troubling, irritating little questions that were in there, like a little piece of sand in a pearl or, conversely, in your sandal. Which one is it? Hopefully there's some sort of a precious something that comes from this, from the scriptures, that I may have touched on. So I'm going to talk about how Matthew uses a specific quote from the Tanakh to refer to a passage that serves as the foundation for Jesus' teaching about... I'm sorry, wrong introduction. Anyway, it's still, it serves as a foundation for his teaching, not about the resurrection of the dead, that's Friday, which would be really remarkable if this said that, but about in response to this question from the Pharisees and in response to a challenge from them. He uses this quote. I want to say, read a quote about quotes. This is an article I came across just last week called Why Jews Quote. The author starts off by saying, well, everybody quotes, but there's a culture of quotation that began within the Tanakh itself, with later portions quoting the earlier ones. And then the author, who was uh, not a Messianic Jew, not a believer in Jesus, still went from there to the New Testament and to rabbinic writings and to Jewish literature, all the way up to the present, and shows how the Tanakh actually is being systematically quoted in all these literatures. So in the process of this, he said this, the whole point of using quotations is that the listener will understand the reference. If they don't understand what you're referring to, then you'll think they're just talking about quote, but they're talking about the whole cultural valence that's behind the quote, the value of it. I'll give you an example. Suppose... You came from a Buddhist culture someplace in Asia and never heard anything about the Bible. And I said to you, for God so... Yeah, but you wouldn't say that. Or even if I said, for God so loved the world, you know what follows after that and you know the significance of that without me having to spell it out for you. If I said, the Lord is my shepherd, you know what comes next and you can go as far as possibly quoting the whole psalm. Or if I say the parable of the sower, it might not be able to quote it, but you can tell me pretty much what was in it because you have this 
deep cultural knowledge that comes from the New Testament teachings you've heard and whatever. And likewise, the Jews of Jesus' time had this heritage in the, especially the Torah, but also other parts of the Tanakh. And so that when a quote is used, there's some recognition of what it's referring to. But there's a difference between Jesus using a quote in the incident that's being described and Matthew using the quote in his description of the incident. And what I mean by this is this. These two passages, the longer of the two, I think takes less than two minutes to read. The other one takes a little more than one minute. How many people here think that the incidents with the Pharisees took one or two minutes? How many think that the only thing that Jesus said was the two sentences? Now, we don't know what else he said, okay? I'm not saying we should sort of try to imagine what was said, but I'm just saying what Matthew is doing is giving a synopsis that has a particular meaning for his readers, which is now embedded in Scripture and more broadly has meaning for us as well. So you have these three, the original words that were spoken for those who were alive then, then Matthew and his audience, and then everybody since then. But of course, we don't necessarily read the accounts the way Matthew's readers read them. And so part of what we're doing in this reunion is to sort of figure out how Matthew was using the Tanakh to convey his message. In this case, it was not so much the truth about Jesus, which we talked about in the previous ones, but the point that Jesus was making. He was communicating Jesus' teaching in a very, very terse way, which would mean something to at least a reasonable portion of his readers. So I want to go through these two passages starting with Matthew chapter 9. Now, if I wanted to refer you to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, what would I say? I could quote the whole verse, all the verses. What else could I do if I didn't want to do that? What I just did, right? Well, since Matthew did not have the second option of saying chapter and verse, that didn't exist for 1,500 years after, He could have quoted an entire passage, the way Hebrews quotes that particular passage, or just referred to it with a few words. And this, I think we all understand, is what's happening in all of the references we've seen so far. All the quotations, they refer not just to the words, but to the concept, the passage, to something much bigger behind it. But we can't always easily figure out exactly what it's referring to because this way of referring to a passage or an idea or concept is very imprecise. It could be referring to a verse. It could be referring to a paragraph. We have to work that out. So part of what I want to do with Hosea, based on my previous hour's talk and in these passages, is to work out exactly what Matthew communicated and that Jesus referred to. So these two incidents were set in a time when Jesus was energetically engaged in healing and preaching the kingdom of heaven and making disciples, aside from the usual things like eating and drinking and, and stuff like that, that seems to be what he was doing and going to synagogue. Preaching, engaged in healing, preaching the kingdom of heaven and making disciples. And although individuals and crowds attached themselves to him to some degree, there was no mass movement in his favor. You see in chapter 11 of Matthew, 
with Jesus saying to the generation, basically saying that you're not responding to me. You're like the ones who said to John about John, he came not eating or drinking. Uh, He must have a demon. And this Jesus came eating and drinking. He's a glutton and a wine-bibber, which I guess means alcoholic. And all these cities that I went to, Chorazin and Bethsaida, where I did all my great miracles, but yet you didn't respond. It'll be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So this was not Jesus gathering a huge church with five services every Sunday and one on Saturday night to boot, where thousands of people are rolling through and, and giving and, you know, that whole thing. He had some disciples. He had some people who would follow him. But other than these tax gatherers and sinners, it doesn't speak about people responding in this way. So it's a very interesting time and maybe instructive as to what is going on in the two passages. Okay, Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat? with tax gatherers and sinners. This was preceded by him calling Matthew to himself, and we had some interesting discussion about what was going on there. But one thing is clear, the tax gatherers and sinners came to him. He didn't grab anybody and make them come in. They came to him, and it's not your most savory group. And the Pharisees say this, why does your teacher eat with tax gatherers and sinners? Now, I always read this as a challenge. Why does he do that? You know, but the more I read it, it doesn't say that. It actually might be a serious question. It might be that they simply do not, cannot fathom why he would be doing this, for they obviously didn't. And also, tax gatherers and sinners weren't seeking them out, I suspect, to be frank. But why does he do this? It's inexplicable to us. And the question arose, was asked this morning, well, what do sinners mean? On one end of the spectrum, there's the idea that it was people who just simply didn't follow the Pharisaic law, who are the, called the Ama, Amaharats, the people of the earth. And on the other hand, these were people who were committing egregious sins that were recognized as such by everybody. And I'm actually of the opinion that it's the latter, not the former. But like all of these scholarly debates, there's always reasonable explanations for the opposite opinion. But whatever it is, Jesus later says he was called to sinners. Right? So I think either he's being ironic in his use of it, of the term, or he's saying, I'm called to the group that you can't understand why I'm eating with them. They're the same people. So it's hard for me to believe that he's referring to people who are not towing the line with Pharisaic law, that that's the people where he was called to, but rather to people who are really considered unsavory. So that is the very beginning. So why does your teacher do this? And we don't know what the disciples said, but Jesus heard, and he said, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So all of a sudden, we shift from tax gatherers and sinners to the well and the sick, with no transition there. And uh, so Jesus is locking himself to a physician. So he says, go and learn what this means. This is the only time Jesus is recorded as saying this in the Gospels. Go and learn what this means. It's usually, is it written... It is written, haven't you heard, that sort of a thing. But here, go and learn what this means. Now, possibly there are other answers, but I believe what he's saying is go to the book, go to Hosea to learn what this means. And he may even have quoted more than just these words, we don't know. But this is 
And then he finishes by saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I believe this is actually the answer to the Pharisee's question. Sometimes this is interpreted as something else other than an answer to the question is, why does your teacher eat with tax gatherers and sinners? Go, okay, go and learn what this means. I desire chesed and not sacrifice. So now Jesus rarely gave straightforward answers in case you haven't noticed two questions. Sometimes he didn't answer them at all. So this is a way they can find out the answer to their question, but he's not telling them directly other than he's making a clear statement. He is a physician or like a physician who has come to the sick, to the sinners. And we had, I'm sure you did, some discussion about who the righteous were. I'm really not clear on this. I can't commit myself to saying that this was, he was saying, to the self-righteous, because it doesn't quite say that there. And there were righteous in Israel. You think of Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke 1, where it says they were righteous, and there were others as well. So I don't know exactly what he meant by that. Perhaps in the questions and answers, you can give me a clear answer. I'm not so sure. But I'm not so sure that this was this big confrontational thing that went on here, the way it is in Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is definitely an overt confrontation. Here, reading it now, I don't see a reason to read it this way, but I can understand the legitimacy of somebody reading it that way. But the key, whatever you say, the key has got to be in Hosea. And I found an interesting thing, no offense to anybody in the group because I tended to do this myself, as we get so fixated on the words that Jesus quoted, it was hard for us to get back into Hosea. It took quite a while to get back into Hosea. Because it reads as if this is his response when I don't believe it is. I think I can explain it as an answer. So let's go back to Hosea, chapter 6. But we've just been told that the answer is back here, Hosea 6. I'm going to look at the whole chapter as being relevant here. Whether you say that's the exact citation or it's the context, not really that important. And I'm going to go from verse 1 and do verse 1 to 3 and then back to verse 6. The first part was, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days, and he will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Now, I do not believe that this was sort of a message that he was giving to the Pharisees to saying, this is what I'm saying to you. Believe what he's saying is, this is what I am doing. This is what I'm doing with tax gatherers and sinners. In fact, this is what I'm doing with my disciples. This is what I'm doing with anybody I meet when I heal and preach the gospel of the kingdom, which tears and heals. And this, I believe, is where the analogy of the physician comes in. I always thought, well, that was a nice, it's a nice thought. And in uh, Mark and Luke, there is no Hosea. It's interesting, isn't it? It's only to uh, what we believe is a Jewish audience that he's saying, I came to wound and to heal Israel. I, in fact, am doing, the claim is actually more radical than that because in Hosea, there's only one healer. There is no healer outside of God himself. And I'm not making any theological statements. I'm just saying, no matter how you can see, but he's doing in his time, what God does in Hosea's time. He brings healing to Israel, both physical healing and spiritual healing, forgiveness of sin, and this whole range of healing. This is why he is the physician. 
And then it continues. But what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth. That's serious stuff. And like the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Now, I do not believe, I don't see how he could be saying, that Israel was as idolatrous in his day as it was in Hosea's day, because it simply wasn't true. However, what he's saying is that as far as the issues of the heart, there was certainly a remnant. Paul tells us that in, in Romans 11. But there was something severely missing, both in the way people treated each other and in the knowledge of God. When I was studying this, I recalled something really important in Jewish thought, because the question was asked, why did God allow the temple to be destroyed? And there were all sorts of different answers given in those centuries following the destruction of the temple. And I needn't trouble you with the different explanations, but with the one that was agreed on, Baseless hatred. So this is the judgment of the rabbinic movement on why the temple was destroyed with its profound consequences for Israel, which, of course, includes not only the destruction of the temple, but the loss of any fragment of sovereignty after that point, the ability to worship as is commanded in the Torah. So that kind of maps pretty well with no chesed, baseless hatred. There's just the division and something in the culture that was not healthy. Again, I don't enjoy saying these things. I don't get any thrills, and I don't like it, as a matter of fact. I don't like to have to say this. I don't like to have to be recorded saying this. But for whatever redemptive aspects there were in the culture of my people at that time, and there were, there was this basic malady that Jesus was sent to heal. He is Israel's healer. So again, he desires chesed. He desires the knowledge of God. But as we saw earlier, Israel did not have either. So I'm not going to continue to the end. We've we've done that before. Getting back to Matthew chapter 9. If, as I'm proposing, Jesus is answering the Pharisees' question. Why do you eat with tax gatherers and sinners? Right, why does he eat? Then his answer is because these are the people who responded to what I've been doing and saying. I was sent to be Israel's healer in every way, including exposing sin and wounding and all this unsavory stuff that comes from the chesed of God. And these are the people who responded to it. What would you expect when these people go, sure, they're sinners, they're sick, but guess what? They're the only ones that realize that they are. Now the message then, the secondary message to the Pharisees is twofold. Number one, why are you not doing what I'm doing? You don't eat with tax gatherers. And then, uh, even more, you're in the same group. You're a tax gatherer and a sinner. So, I don't believe that Jesus was saying, just have some mercy on these tax gatherers and sinners. That's part of the picture, but that's not what was going on, I believe, in Matthew. He's saying, I'm answering your question. This is what I'm doing. This is the big picture. I desire chesed and not sacrifice. Maybe if I have time in the questions and answers, I'll go over the specific issues of sacrifice because they're not idolatrous sacrifices anymore. They're something else. But what he desires is chesed and the knowledge of God. That's his ministry. Now, in chapter 10, Yeshua, excuse me, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus. 
It's a discipline for me to say Jesus, actually, because I usually call him by his Hebrew name. Appoints the disciples as apostles. He gives them authority to heal and to go out and preach the kingdom of heaven. Same things that he was doing. And although they're sometimes called disciples and not apostles later, from that point on, they had this authority and this calling, basically to do the same thing that he was doing, only not, I believe, to make their own disciples. He was doing the same thing. So he was calling them to participate in this service to Israel of wounding and healing. Physician's assistance or something like that. Not everybody else, not everybody was authorized to do this. He only authorized 12 to do it. So it's not like this was like this general thing for anybody who follows him to go and do this. And I'm not making any statements about what we're called to do today. I'm talking about that time. And they go out. And meanwhile, he experiences more persecution. And he issues his statement about his generation and about Chorazin and Bethsaida and other places where he ministered. And then he speaks, goes, to come all you who are burdened and heavy laden. That's not exactly. Somebody give me the quote. Weary, weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And this leads right into chapter 12 and the incident with the Pharisees. So rest is part of the whole ministry of healing, obviously. So chapter 12, verse 1. Now, I'm going to say that this quote, his reference, is to the same passage, meaning exactly the same thing here as it means in Matthew 9, but in a totally different context and in different and requiring me to work hard to explain it to you. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples, who were, again, by now apostles, were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And it was correct, this was defined... In earlier, actually, not by the Pharisees, but earlier on, is one categories of work that's not permitted on the Sabbath to reap in this way. And also we might want to add that this is not exactly a great treat. This is not like, hey, let's get out the grill and cook up some dogs. This was minimal, right? It's just, they must have been, I don't know how starved they were. I don't know if it was absolutely essential, but it turns out it's not going to matter whether it was absolutely essential for them to do this or not. It was legitimate. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying here. But when the Pharisees saw it, who were apparently lurking around all the time to see what was going on, <laughs> said, look, you're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. I don't know what your translation reads, unlawful, it is illegitimate, whatever. Not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Can't do that. And let's, just, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say it was correct. This was a form of labor that's not permitted on the Sabbath. I'm going to claim that it actually was permitted, but let's suppose it isn't permitted. Suppose they're right, because he actually doesn't disagree with them. He doesn't say, no, no, you're wrong. You've got the categories of work wrong. I'll lay out what the correct thing is. He actually does that in the next incident following this. But no, no, he doesn't say that. He said, have you not read, verse 3, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful, same word, for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. They did something that was not lawful. And really, it's just as unlawful to do that as to violate the Sabbath by doing work. So it's not lawful. But yet, that's all he says about it. There's just, there were exigent circumstances in the case of David and those who were with him. In the case of Jesus, I think he's making a different argument, which will only become apparent as we move on. Or have you not read in the Torah how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
or innocent. How can you profane the Sabbath and be guiltless? You can't profane something and be guiltless, can you? Can you? Nobody wants to answer? Can you? (laughs) Jesus said you can under certain circumstances, right? So how can you do something which is not lawful and yet it is permissible? How can you do something, how can you profane the Sabbath and yet be guiltless? So all this has actually nothing to do with Hosea yet. And then he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And in brackets I have, and my apostles serve as priests in it. This is an important thing. It's not written anywhere, but it's important for understanding the connection between Jesus and his physicians and whatever you want to call them, in this something that is greater than the temple, they are serving him because they are the ones whose behavior is being questioned, not his. What are they doing? Well, they're serving as priests in this something greater. So let me explain the, the concept of something being permitted when it's not permitted. It's in the Torah because this, it's not permitted to work on the Sabbath, period, or so it seems. But if you're a priest in the temple on the Sabbath, you are commanded to work. You must participate in the offerings of sacrifice and any other thing, the cleaning up and everything else that was required to do that work on the Sabbath. And as a matter of fact, if you don't work on the Sabbath, you then are guilty. So see, it's all a matter of your location, not just geographic location, but the spiritual location, and what part of the Torah you're mandated under. And the priests had this particular mandate. What Jesus, I believe, is saying here is that something greater than the temple is here. And he says then afterwards, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. I do not believe he's saying, you know, now that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I can kind of make it up as I go along. You know, that's great. Oh, you want to eat the grain that way? Sure, fine. Notice they didn't, it doesn't say they asked us permission to eat. They just did it. So they maybe knew something. I got some better ideas because Moses, he was a little strict. So I think I'm going to change this. and change. Or being Lord of the Sabbath enabled him to do some things and for his disciples to do some things that it is not permitted for others to do. Whether they are priests in the temple or the average Israelite or Jew outside. Priests in the temple must work. The Israelites must not work. And what Jesus and his disciples do is something else. There's a verse, I should have looked this up, it's in uh, Hebrews. You don't have this in your translation, but the Greek says that he placed something, placed the new covenant as Torah. He gave it as Torah. In Hebrew, my Greek escapes me right now, but he placed the new covenant as Torah. In other words, not replaced the Torah, but in the same way as here, he's saying he's the, something greater than the temple is here, And his apostles do certain things that are ordinarily not permitted to do. They're not lawful. In the same way that that has been placed as now part of the Torah, which only applies to certain specific people the same way as the priesthood is only certain specific people. And this is the part you weren't going to get from Hosea. So, and then he says this, For if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Okay, who are the guiltless? In verse 5, they're the priests in the temple who profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. So since they're condemning somebody, it must be the disciples they're condemning. And he's saying they're guiltless. So 
Is he saying, don't condemn them, have mercy on them? See, this is what I looked at that and I said, you know, you don't need to have chesed toward the disciples. They're not doing anything wrong at all. It's like saying, here's just a bunch of people just sitting here enjoying a wonderful talk right now and having, enjoying your conference and somebody coming in and condemning you. Well, they didn't do anything wrong. You don't have to ask them to summon up the, the, an attribute of God for this or chesed toward the person. They just should be recognized as guiltless. That's it. In other words, the argument is strange if he's saying chesed. And bringing in sacrifice also would be odd. So something else, I believe, is happening here. And I think it's exactly the same thing that was happening back in chapter 9 when he introduced this topic. In chapter 9, if I'm right, Jesus was saying, you want to know what I'm doing with these tax collectors and sinners? I'm doing what it says here in Hosea. I am their physician. And they've come to me because they've responded to the gospel, which wounds and which heals. And they, like everybody else, are God demands of them chesed and the knowledge of God. This is what I'm doing. This is what it means to be healing and preaching the kingdom of heaven. That's one way to construe what Jesus is doing, the kingdom of heaven. And now my disciples are doing the same thing. So if, back in chapter 9, you all, if they were the same Pharisees, we don't know, had gone to learn what I was doing, why I am doing eating with tax gatherers and sinners. And if you had understood my ministry is basically doing in our time or proclaiming in our time what Hosea was proclaiming in his time, you wouldn't have condemned me and you wouldn't be condemning my disciples because they're doing the same thing. Well, how would they know the disciples are doing the same thing? Because they've been spying on them the whole time. So why condemn people for sustaining themselves physically. No, they, they, didn't, they weren't going to starve to death if they hadn't rubbed the grain out. But no longer, no more would priests in the temple, no matter what little task you're called to do, no matter how superficial, if you're in the temple and you simply do the ordinary things that you would do in that space, whether it's a Sabbath violation or not, you're guiltless. I think all they were doing is something for which they are not guilty, and it says they were guiltless. So... Chris has probed that a little further because we got to the point where we're looking at this and I'll grant it's difficult to see this, especially if all of this stuff is new, including the Torah stuff is new. But I believe that Matthew is representing this scene accurately as Jesus confronting the Pharisees. Now they should have known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, meaning the passage that they're referring to. You have to know what the quotation is referring to, otherwise the author is not communicating. And we looked at what he's referring to in Hosea chapter 6. So I think what Jesus is saying is if they had understood his ministry, his calling to Israel, they would have understood what he was doing with the tax gatherers and sinners and would have actually taken it to heart. And they would understand now what his disciples are doing because he wasn't being accused. It was only his disciples that his disciples were doing exactly the same thing. Now, how many people know the word heuristic? H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C. This is a very important word because this is a lot of the way we learn in life. It's somewhat trial and error, hopefully more trial and less error, and it's exploring a situation or something that must be explained and looking for how you can explain it. And what I try to do in these two passages is to understand how the same quote, meaning the same thing, 
could apply in both instances. And Jesus isn't just sort of all of a sudden turning the tables on the Pharisees and say, you went and learned what it means there, but now it means something different here. It means the same thing. Now, my explanation is a heuristic one. I could, there are a couple of points I can't prove. The question is, the way these things work, and by the way, we're all doing this all the time if we don't know the word. We argue about what happened, how it's interpreted, a thing, and we argue in the favor of the one or the other. And very often, people cannot prove their case. But their explanation might be better than yours, or yours better than them. It might account for more things in the passage. And that one is the one that is, for now, that's the best one we have. The alternative explanation that I've seen mostly is that Jesus was using these words, not really so much in context of, with reference to Hosea, but simply as a confrontation to the Pharisees, saying, you're not merciful in both instances. And I don't think he's doing that. I don't think that really holds up under examination. So I believe that what Jesus was doing is he came, sent by God, to heal and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to Israel, which means it's a gospel of repentance, and to heal Israel. He is Israel's healer. And this is what he was trying to communicate to the Pharisees on these two occasions. And you may have some questions. I know that's a lot to take in, especially in the second passage, but... I'm sorry if I didn't follow right, but did you mean that Jesus did heal a baseless hatred? Did I write that? Uh, well, that is the way the early rabbis described it, okay. or the baseless hatred. Yes. I have a question regarding both the Matthew passages. Forgive my ignorance, but I'm not that familiar with the law. But do you think the Pharisees were interpreting the law a certain way? Does the law strictly say that you're not allowed to sit with sinners and eat with them? Does the law okay. say, because I thought like the law was like referring to the second Matthew passage, that you can work for six days, but on the seventh day rest. Do you think they were being extreme in their interpretation? Okay, the yeah, those, the issue of, maybe we'll leave that question to when Ron and I are together to answer that about why the issue of why eating with tax gatherers and sinners was either a strange thing or you say forbidden. I don't, it was not forbidden, mm-hmm. but there are reasons why one would not do that that requires some explanation. But I think, by the way, when he referred them to Hosea, I think they understood Hosea very well. I think the idea was to learn that Jesus was doing, basically playing Hosea's role, but also bringing actual healing, not just speaking. So they understood things very well, is that they didn't understand themselves and the ongoing reality of Jesus in the context. Okay. 